Well, good morning. It's still morning, isn't it? Yeah, it's still morning. Yes, good morning. Uh, it's great to be here at Compass Bible. Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, while you're turning there, I will just underline how great it's been to be here and experience your hospitality, uh, your great kindness. Uh, it is a remarkable church that you guys have, and I've been uh, privileged to just kind of float around in it over the weekend to get to know Pastor Mike a little bit better and see all the wonderful things that are happening here. Every church is different. Uh, I'm at First Baptist in Jacksonville, and it's a Southern Baptist church, and when I preach at, Southern, at, uh, at First Baptist, and everybody gets excited, when that happens, they clap and they shout amen and all these kinds of things. And I figured out that when the folks at Compass Bible get excited, it sounds like keyboard clicks. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Uh, you, like, uh, you think nobody cares, and you look out, and you're like bent over like really really writing down the note. Uh, I, during one of the breakout sessions at the conference over the weekend, I was sitting next to a woman who had this massive, gargantuan, visible from outer space laptop <laughs> seated on her lap. And I was sitting right next to her, and she was, I mean, getting word for word on these notes. I thought somebody was paying her to take dictation. I told uh, Denny Burke afterwards, I was like, if you get confused about what you said, I guarantee you she knows more about it than you do. <laughs> so you guys are legit on uh, your sermon notes, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here with you and uh, talk with you this morning about Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, a powerful and important moment in the life and times of Jesus Christ, where having been baptized having the Spirit of God fall on him, having the voice of God the Father call out from heaven that this is my beloved Son. With him I'm well pleased. He is led away to a season of temptation. That season of temptation is powerful and important in his life and existence and by extension, it's powerful and important in our lives and existence today. The Apostle Matthew records for us what happens. Matthew 4, verses 1 to 11, this is what God says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he'd fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones that they become bread. But he answered and said, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you fall down 
and worship me. Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Let's pray. Father, as we gather together around your word, we want to do it with great spirit of sobriety and humility. The task ahead of us is too much for us. There is not any way I can preach this text in a way it is intended without the Spirit of Christ. And there is no hope that anyone in this room can hear and understand and obey without the powerful Spirit of Christ. And so we need help. We need a miracle. We need the Spirit of God who gave us these words to give us hearts that understand these words, that gives us will to live these words. And so, Father, without the gift of the grace of your Son, we're sunk before we ever even get started. And so help. I'm praying for help that would transform the lives of people in this room. I'm praying that the aftershock of that would reverberate out into Orange County and into Southern California and across this state and across this country and across this world. Father, we want to be so bold to ask that you would pour out your spirit and save millions. Father, we believe that you could do it right now in this room. And so we're bold to ask you to do what only you could do and to do it now. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you the story of a friend of mine I'm going to call Tim. We were talking and he let me know uh, one evening one of the most life-changing events in his entire life. There was a woman at his work that started to show a lot of interest in him. She always found a reason to swing by his office. If they were in a meeting together, she always found a reason to stay longer. If he was telling a joke, she always found a reason to laugh harder, even when it wasn't that funny. And he liked it. He admitted that he liked it. He admitted that he liked a younger, attractive woman paying attention to him. He started to find reason to spend a little bit more time with her. And one night, what had seemed innocent on the outside got kind of scary. He had stayed late at work. There was nobody else around. The building was dark. He was 
working down the hall away from his office, and he decided he was going to take some things and drop them off at his office, pick up a few things, and then head home. As he walked down the hall, he saw a light coming from his office. And he walked in, and she was sitting there. She was sitting on the desk. There's nobody around, and it's just her, it's just him, and the dim light of the room. And she said, as he stood in his office, Tim, you work too hard. You need a break. You need somebody who's going to take care of you. She got off the desk and she walked across the room and she got right up to him. And she put her face an inch from his. And she said, Tim, nobody ever has to know. As Tim told me that story and what went on to happen in his office that night, he said, I knew I was in trouble because I thought she was attractive. And I was tempted. And I needed help. Now, I don't know what your story is. I don't know what temptations you showed up with here today. I just know you've got them. Maybe your temptation is the temptation of Tim. The temptation of an illicit, sinful, sexual relationship. Maybe it's the temptation of your computer or your iPhone. Maybe it's the temptation of gossip. Maybe it's the temptation of slander and a lie. Maybe it is the temptation to overeat or to undereat. It doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter what the specific circumstance is. Every single one of us knows what it's like when the tractor beam of temptation grabs hold of us and starts trying to pull us in. We all know what it is to feel the strength and the power of that temptation and to say with Tim, I know I'm in trouble because I'm tempted. Well, in this account of Jesus' life, we see the story of the devil turn on the tractor beam of temptation and try to pull in the Son of God. And as we see what the devil does and as we see how Jesus responds, there are powerful and important lessons for us today. This happened over 2,000 years ago. But the lessons from this event in the life of Jesus stretch over oceans and continents and over millennia, and it hits us right where we live today. And I want us to see six lessons on temptation from this event in the life of Jesus. And the first lesson is that the origin of temptation is evil. The origin 
of temptation is evil. The Bible teaches several sources of temptation. One source of temptation is our own sinful desires. In James chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle James says, Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own desire. Our hearts are corrupt, our hearts are sinful, and there are wrong and wicked desires that grow up out of them and tempt us away from the kingdom of Christ and his righteousness. That is to say that sometimes when the tractor beam of temptation grabs a hold of us, we don't need any help from the outside. It just comes right from within our own hearts. Another source of temptation that the Bible describes is the world. In 1 John chapter 1, chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, the Bible says, Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away, and also its lusts. What the Apostle John means by the world here is he, he's thinking about you, and he's thinking about your sinful desires. And he's thinking about the people that aren't in this room right now. And he's thinking about their sinful desires. And he says, when you take one sinful person's sinful desires and you put them together with all of everybody else's sinful desires, you get a mass of sinful humanity and a collection of desires that are wicked and corrupt. That's the world. The world is the gathered sinful desires of every sinful person, and that exerts gravity on you and on me. It urges us to be like them. It is the tractor beam of temptation. The world grabs a hold of us and tries to pull us in, and it says, watch on Netflix the things we watch. Have the kind of sex that we have. Spend your money on the things we spend our money on. It is the gathered sinful mass of humanity that is opposed to God and his Christ. In our account this morning, Jesus is tempted by the devil. The devil's real. This is the kind of thing that will have people in Orange County think you're nuts. You believe that? You believe there's a devil out there, well, yeah, we believe it because the Bible says that he's real. He tempts Jesus here in Matthew chapter 4. In verse 1, it says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. In verse 3, the devil is called the tempter. He tempts Jesus and he tempts us. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, Your enemy. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The devil was after Jesus, and he is after you. 
Sometimes when the tractor beam of temptation grabs a hold of you, it is powerful, spiritual, and demonic forces. This teaches us that the origin of temptation is evil. Think how evil this is. Jesus Christ just been baptized. The spirit has fallen on him. The voice of heavenly glory says, this is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. And what does the devil do but try to figure out how to mess it up? I know. I know how I'll respond to this glory. I'll torpedo it. That's what the devil says. It's so evil. It's so bad. It's so corrupt. And this is so important for us to remember because temptation never looks evil. That's the point. If it looked evil, if it looked bad, if it looked scary, we wouldn't be tempted. The woman who walked into Tim's office that night wasn't a vampire with blood dripping down her fangs and hissing and screaming. No, it, it was a woman, and Tim said, I was in trouble because I was attracted to it. The beautiful woman doesn't look scary. The gossipy conversation doesn't seem bad. Sounds like a prayer request. Gluttony doesn't look wicked. It just looks like a fourth piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> it always looks good. And that's why we need to remember that temptation is never neutral. And it's never good. It is always, always evil. It's always bad. The first lesson on temptation is that the origin of temptation is evil. The second lesson is that the focus of temptation is self. The focus of temptation is self. We see this in the first temptation. Verse three, the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones that they become bread. Now the, probably the, the most significant question that gets asked about these collection of verses is what's so bad about this? Why is this a temptation? What's the big deal? The poor guy is hungry. He hasn't eaten in 40 days. He looks terrible. He smells awful. We don't eat in four hours and we're ready for a cheeseburger. It's been 40 days. What would, what would be so wrong with just a little, little dash of son of God power and let's just shake these stones up into some bread and end the rumble in my stomach. What would be a big deal about that? Well, what the big deal is, is what is on the line here is the kind of Messiah that Jesus is going to be. What kind of Savior is Jesus going to be? You read the Gospel of Matthew, and you find out incredible, astounding, miraculous things about Jesus. He's the Son of God come in power, and he does amazing things. The man walks on water. He uses his power to get the molecules of water to hold together in a way they never, ever do, and they hold up his full-grown body. He looks at blind men and he touches them and their eyes pop open 
And they see light for the first time in history. They see it. He, he looks at a man who's never walked in his life, just twisted, atrophied legs. And he says, get up. And he does get up. It's shocking displays of inexhaustible power. But in miracle after miracle after miracle, Jesus never uses his power on himself. Never. Jesus only ever uses his power for others. There's no self-miracle in the Gospels. That's because Jesus didn't come to use his power to advance his glory. He came to be a servant. The logic of the temptation here, the, the reality behind it, it's not that there's anything wrong with eating bread when you're hungry. It's Jesus, are you going to be in this for yourself? The focus of temptation is yourself. And if the devil or your own heart or the world can get you thinking about yourself, it's game over. Whether it's adultery or gossip or cake. It's it. If the devil can get Jesus Christ thinking about himself, it's done. The focus of temptation is your sinful self. The focus of righteousness is God and trusting him. What kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? Well, the third lesson on temptation is that the allure of temptation is entitlement. The origin of temptation is evil every time. The focus of temptation is you, yourself. The allure of temptation is entitlement. We see this in the second temptation. The devil, verse 5, took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he'll command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. The devil says to Jesus, you know, Jesus, I was doing my devotions this morning. And I found out that the Bible says that God's going to have your back. And if you throw yourself down from a really high point, you're not even going to strike your foot against the snow, much less go splat all over the ground. The allure of temptation is entitlement. The idea is to get you to force God's hand so that God will provide something for you that he has not promised. The point is to get you to believe that there is some guarantee from God for you that is apart and different from the grace that he provides on his own will. 
This desire of entitlement, that I want things God hasn't promised. This, this desire that drives temptation finds it hard or impossible to believe that God is being good to you when you're going through a hard time. Why am I going through a hard time? God's supposed to give me all this stuff. I'm entitled to that. God didn't promise it. But I feel like I want it. God's not being good to me. Why are my lips cracked? Why am I parched? Why am I hungry? Temptation always gets you thinking about yourself and everything you want that God hasn't promised. Do you hear that? In the words of that woman to my friend Tim that night, Tim, you, their self, you need a break. Don't you, don't you want a break, Tim? You need somebody to take care of you. Some wife nagging you to come home. Kids want money. Tim, you need somebody to take care of you. It's selfishness. It's entitlement. God never said I deserve him, but now all of a sudden I wonder why he hasn't given it. The fourth lesson of temptation is that the goal of temptation is a kingdom. The goal of temptation is a kingdom. We see this in the third temptation. Verse 8, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all these things I'll give you. You can have them all. Just one little thing, Jesus. Just a, it's a small thing. What I need you to do is just, just take a knee and worship the devil. And if you'll do that, you can have all this. All these kingdoms, all this glory, it's all yours. No crosses necessary. No crowns required. Just a quick little thing. That's it. And it'll be over and you can have it. It's a temptation that appeals to a sinful desire for a kingdom. You can stockpile everything the world has to offer and get it real easy and real quick. All you got to do is sell your soul. Temptation gets you thinking about all the kingdoms that you want and how you can get them on the cheap. You hear that? In Tim's office that night, do you hear that when this woman gets right up to him and her breath is in his face and she says to him, Tim, nobody ever has to know. It's just between you and me. You hear, you hear the promise of a kingdom? Tim, you can keep your wife. 
you can keep your kids. You can keep going to church. You can keep your reputation in the community. You can keep your job. And Tim, you can have me. Right here, right now on that couch. It'll be so easy. You can have it all. Just sell your soul. The goal is to get a kingdom on the cheap. Well, those, those first four lessons are about the mechanics of temptation. It's about how it works. It's about what drives it. It's about the origin of it being evil, about the focus of it being on yourself, about the allure of it being what you deserve and the goal of it to stockpile all of that. But as we turn the corner to the last two lessons, we start to see how we can respond to all of those mechanics of temptation. And we see in the fifth lesson that the logic of temptation is unbiblical. We see this in, in every single one of the temptations. The devil thinks unbiblically. He thinks in a way that is at odds with God's speech. The voice of God, the word of God has just thundered out of heaven. This is my beloved son. With him I'm well pleased. And now, on the other side of a 40-day fast, a hungry, thirsty, exhausted Messiah hears the devil say, if... You're the son of God. Do you hear all that wicked doubt in there? If you're the son of God. He, he does it again in verse six. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. You poor, hungry, thirsty, miserable, stinky wretch of a man. I, I heard something out of the clouds that you were somebody's son, but you don't look like any son to me. Poor guy. It's unbiblical doubt. It is, one small two-letter word is an assault against God's speech. The devil tries to tempt Jesus and gets him thinking unbiblically even when he uses the Bible. He quotes the Bible for Pete's sake. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 6. This is something the devil does throughout Scripture. The Bible quotes, uh, the devil quotes the Bible a lot, but every single time he does it, he misquotes it. The devil uses the Bible, but his hermeneutics are corrupt. His system of interpretation is wicked. He never uses the Bible in the way that it is meant. And what Jesus does is he responds to every assault, every doubt, every unbiblical assertion, he responds to it with the truth of the word of God. In verse four, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. 
In verse 7, on the other hand, yeah, okay, yeah, maybe you give me this if I worship you. Maybe, uh, maybe I could uh, ha- presume that God's going to protect me. Maybe I could have this bread. But on the other hand, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In verse 10, go Satan, for it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. In the midst of an unbiblical assault, the Son of God responds with a nuclear strike of Scripture. He sends a volley of Bible right at the devil. There's just a lesson here for us. In the midst of all of the unbiblical assaults from the world, from the devil, from our own sinful hearts, we've got to have truth. We've got to respond with the truth of Scripture. The devil and the world and our sinful hearts, unbiblical logic can only be destroyed with the logic of Scripture. It's why you need to be here on Sunday morning. It's why you need to be a part of a Bible study group. It's why you need to have a Bible reading time. It's why you need to memorize Scripture. Psalm 119 says, Your word I have stored in my heart that I won't sin against you. When this assault comes and tries to get us to believe lies, even when it sounds good, how are we going to fight? We've got to have truth. We've got to have a sword of truth that cuts through the fog and the lies. We need to take a lesson from Jesus here and use the word of God to combat temptation. We need the Bible, but we need more than that. And that gets us to the sixth Lesson on temptation. And that is that the power of temptation is shattered by Jesus Christ. The power of temptation is shattered by Jesus Christ. We're being tempted today. If we're not right now, we will be soon enough. Jesus was tempted a couple of thousand years ago, but there's a crucial difference between the temptations of Jesus and our own temptations. The crucial difference is that when we are tempted, we regularly cave, and when Jesus was tempted, he never did. Why not? Well, it's because in the Bible, there's two kinds of temptation. There is an external temptation, and there is an internal temptation. If there is $100,000 stacked up here on the platform, and you're all alone, nobody's around, nobody can see anything, there is an external temptation there. The external temptation says, hey, take a handful, take the whole thing. Nobody's going to know. But you might be the kind of person that would never be tempted by that. That just doesn't do it for you. If there was a piece of chocolate cake, you'd be dead in the water. (laughs) But $100,000, you're just not tempted to that. Well, what's going on is there is an external temptation that doesn't hit any sinful internal desire in your heart. Sooner or later, external temptation is going to hit a sinful desire in the heart of every person. It might be a woman, 
It might be money. It might be gossip. But sooner or later, all of us are going to find ways to internalize an external temptation and become guilty. But not with Jesus. This is the way Jesus was really tempted and yet wasn't morally flawed. He was really tempted because there was a real external temptation out there, but none of these found a way to internalize in his heart. Jesus was never internally tempted to violate the law of God. He was never internally tempted to turn his back on his father. And that what makes him so much different than you and I. Because Jesus passed these tests, and he passed every test that came after, and he went to the cross as a perfect, flawless, morally impeccable man. And when he died on the cross and he bled out, he was rendering a payment, a payment that counts because he didn't have to pay for his own sin like you or I would. Because he's perfectly righteous, because he batted 1,000. He has sufficient funds to pay for your sin. And you know that the payment is received because three days after he died, he walked out of the tomb. He demonstrates in a beating heart that death did not defeat him. The devil did not defeat him. Sin did not defeat him. He defeated them, and they do whatever the Son of God tells them to do. The funds go through. And now, because they've gone through, when we turn from our sin and our temptation, and we look to Jesus, and we believe in him, we have help and our temptations. We don't have to give in to our temptations because we have a Savior who purchased us with his blood who didn't give in to his. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 to 16, the Bible says, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. This is looking back at Matthew chapter 4, and it's saying Jesus won. And it makes Jesus sympathetic. It means he gets it. And you can say, well, he doesn't get it because he didn't give in. But that means he gets it more. Do you see? Jesus, when you and I give in to temptation, we give in before the temptation gets to its full strength. It sucked us in before it worked its whole deal. Jesus, because he never gave in, he's the only human being in history that has ever felt the full strength, the full duration of temptation, and yet never gave in. He gets more about temptation than you do. And so he's sympathetic. He knows what it's like. And he's not proud about it. He's not arrogant about it. He is sympathetic because he knows the burn. And because of that, verse 16, therefore, because that's true, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Jesus beat temptation, because he paid for sin, because those funds were received in the resurrection, 
and because he is seated right now on a literal throne, we have help when we're in trouble. The Bible says that we can draw near. This is the language of intimate prayer. It's Jesus who's ascended into the heavens and is seated on a throne. He can be right there for you in the moment, in the instance of your temptation when you call out to him, when you draw near to him. When you draw near to him wherever you are or whatever is going on, Jesus is there. And he gives mercy and grace to help in whatever your time of need is. Do you need help when you're struggling? Jesus is there. Do you need power when you feel overwhelmed by the forbidden woman or the forbidden man? Jesus Christ is there. And he will help you. And he will give you grace and strength in your time of need. It is a promise of the word of God. And the more you believe it, the more you have it. Tim stood in his office that night and there was nobody around. He's in a dimly lit room and the forbidden woman is right in front of him. He can smell her perfume. And she said, him. Nobody ever has to know. It's just you and me here. And Tim said to me, I knew I was in trouble because I was attracted to her. I was tempted and I needed help. And do you know what he did? All alone in his office with the couch right there, he mouthed a prayer right in that woman's face. He said, Lord, help me. And you know what happened? The Lord helped him. And he said, we've got to get out of here. And he turned on his heel and he ran out of his office. He ran down the hallway. He ran through the parking lot. He broke the speed limit to get home. <laughs> and he told his wife what happened. And together they got on the phone and they called a friend from church. And together they worked out a plan to eliminate the involvement of this woman in his life to isolate him away from her so that the threat could be removed. There was a lot of practical steps they took in the days and the weeks that followed to neutralize the threat. But if Tim were standing in front of you right now, he would say to you what he said to me. The reason I made it out of my office that night was that Jesus helped me. And what I want to say to you today is that I don't know whether you're dealing with chocolate cake. I don't know whether you're dealing with gossip or dishonesty or porn or adultery or I don't know what it is. 
But I want to say to you that there's mercy and grace available to help you in your time of need. There's mercy and grace from a Christ who beat temptation in his life and ever lives to overwhelm temptation in yours. And whenever you draw near to his throne of grace, you will find mercy and grace from Jesus Christ himself to help in whatever your hour of temptation is. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, with so many people in this room, there are just as many tempting situations happening. And so, Father, as we draw near together as a group, each one of us is drawing near individually and alone with our own unique struggles. And, Father, we are asking for grace to help with each one. I'm asking that you would fill up our hearts with your truth, that we would wage war against temptation with your word. And Father, I'm praying that the truth that would fill up our heart more than any other is the truth that Jesus Christ, in his victory over temptation, has been victorious on our behalf. And now we have his own mercy and his own grace to help in any hour of need. So help us now, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.